Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and we're pleased that you're with us here this morning. It's a beautiful WIP day in that it's a little rainy right now, but any day's beautiful, and it's going to go up to 77, so it should improve. But no matter where you go, no matter what the day, take 94 WIP with you. Always good, hot conversation. We also say a welcome to September. It's here. It's back to school time. Parents are celebrating. Kids are weeping. But that's the way things are. More good conversation when we come up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. As we welcome author Joan Brunson. Joan Brady, I'm sorry. Joan Brady, author of a new book about Alger Hiss, Richard Nixon, and a whole lot more here on 94 WIP. Good morning, Joan Brady. Good morning, Peter. It's been a morning. Um, It's been a morning. All right. (laughs) For folks who don't remember, because it was a while ago, who was Alger Hiss? Alger Hiss was a guy who began as the uh, organizing secretary general of the United Nations and the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and who ended up in prison for perjury as a result of accusations against him for being a communist. This was when? This was 1948 to 1950. A scary time in this country, wasn't it? A very scary time. A very scary time. Why? Well, it was it was a really wildly anti-communist time and I mean it was there was the House on American this was before McCarthy. Uh, who was 1952, I think. Uh, and the fear of communists was just out of hand. The bomb was part of it, but a lot of it had to do just with the idea that I think that the working man might have a part in one's economy. But it also had somehow or other come to embody the idea of becoming an automaton if you had such beliefs and that you wanted everybody else to become an automaton. I mean, part of the uh, House on American Activities Committee, uh, uh, one of their um, their chief investigator wrote that communists stole souls and that you would become, you would not be able to do anything you wanted to unless it was printed down. And children as far away as Canada couldn't sleep without the lights on for fear that they'd be stolen away by communism. It was by communists. It was just a terrifying time. A national, hyster- national hysteria, um, to say the least. To say the least. It was very like the witch hysteria of, you know, of Salem, only it was nationwide. Now, Joan, your book, Alger His Frame, the new look at the case that made Nixon famous. What led you to write it? Well, I I knew Alger for 30-odd years, but I'd never particularly cared much about his case. I didn't much like him all that. I mean, I I liked him. It isn't that I didn't like him. It's that I never quite warmed to him, I think is probably the best way to put it. And I didn't get really interested in the case until I was in legal trouble myself and was threatened with prison. And I didn't know anybody who'd ever been threatened with anything like that since he was dead by that time. I was I was left sort of looking into his case more for solace than anything else. But what now, I found really outraged me. Now, 
how did Hatcher go from being this very important man on the world stage to being accused and ending up in prison? What happened? It took a week. A whole week. My One goodness. week to destroy a career like that. What happened was that he was accused in the New York. See, these accusations were handed out like potato chips, and n- newspapers would print long lists of the newly accused. And Alger found himself in one of these lists on the New York Times. In the New York Times, he was accused by a guy called Whitaker Chambers of being a communist and of heading a cell, a communist cell in the State Department. And um, he was he was annoyed, I think was probably the best way to put it. He, he faced accusations before. I mean, everybody in government was accused of being a communist. I mean, they even accused Roosevelt's mother of being a communist. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. But he, he looked at this and he said, a matter of principle is involved here. They had just put away 10 Hollywood writers just for do, refusing to name names of people they thought might be communists. They weren't going to turn, in over the, turn over their friends. And they, had, they weren't going to take the fifth either because it implied they'd committed a crime. And being a communist wasn't a crime at the time. The Communist Party was a perfectly legal party. So Alger thought, here's this matter of principle. They won't do this to me. And he wrote to the committee demanding that he be allowed to, de- de- um, to deny these charges under oath. And they accepted now, at once. Who was Whitaker Chambers to accuse him? Whitaker Chambers was, the ed- was an editor at Time magazine by that time, but he'd had a very checkered past, and he, he, was, a, he was a strange man. Um, one of the things that he, from the time he was a small child, he was preoccupied with spies, uh, at the time when he was a, was a child, it was German spies rather than, rather than Russian spies, but he shifted. And he was a guy who loved to, sh- to shock. He was very brilliant. Um, when he went to Columbia, they thought he might be the, the literary genius of the age. But he, didn't, he couldn't quite sustain stuff, I guess, was the real problem. And he got kicked out of Columbia for writing a play about a gay Jesus Christ in a red wig, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, but then he went and lit, worked in a library, got kicked out of the library, saying, he, and he said the reason was that he'd, that he'd had communist literature in his locker, but in fact what they'd found was stolen books from Columbia, and he had, bought, he had tried to remove their provenance as well. So that was why he was fired from there. So he joined the Communist Party, which he did do, and ran around the village saying that he was an a Soviet Soviet spy with the FBI after him everywhere. He was very odd. Sounds like he was and, nuts. Yeah, I think he was too. He really was very odd. And uh, when when he started um, running around, then then he decided um, he wasn't going to be. Oh, I know what happened. Walter Kravitsky, a spy, a proper Soviet spy, defected and wrote um, a memoir. And it became the, uh, you know, the literary sensation of the day. And uh, at once, Whitaker Chambers wrote his own um, confessions as a spy. The Russians, by the way, have no record of him being a spy at all. But he was going to write his, his spy uh, confessions. And he tried, 
And they weren't really very good because they didn't have any names in them. So he worked on them with a number of people until they um, improved them enough to allow him to go and confess to the FBI, which also found them very puzzling because, again, while he would say this person and that person and the other person was a spy, he didn't have any proof. He didn't have any proof, didn't, couldn't give anything that would be interesting. But he did, in these lists, which changed in number over some, over nearly a decade, I guess, um, they changed in who was accused and how many were accused, and some, sometimes some were off and sometimes some were on, and Alger Hiss was one of them. That's how it began, and when he finally got through to somebody who would pay attention to him, the House on american Activities Committee, he had Alger Hiss on it quite prominently, and Alger was a very prominent man. So, you know, he was much more interesting to, to for them. Okay. They were on the way out. Yeah, the House on american Activities Committee had a very yeah. interesting member, didn't it? It did indeed. Its newest member was a junior congressman from... California, which was Richard Nixon. And it was Richard Nixon who decided, here's my opportunity. Absolutely. It wasn't the first time. I mean, he got his con congressional seat by um, red-baiting a guy called Jerry Voorhees, who was really, who had actually been a member of HUAC before. But he was a very, he was an incumbent. He'd been in for 10 years. Everybody loved him. He was voted one of the most popular of, uh, and most useful by the press corps in, in Washington. But, and, and uh, Nixon says on his tapes, I didn't think Jerry Voorhees was a communist. He was one of the most decent people I ever knew. But I had to win. Winning at any cost. Mm. Winning at any cost. And he, I mean, he was really, he had teams of women who would call up and say, uh, you know, call, cold call people and say, I don't know if you know it, but Jerry Voorhees is a communist. So Voorhees lost, Nixon became, Voorhees lost. Nixon became a member of Congress and a member of the House on right. American Activities Committee. Exactly so. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Joan Brady, author, historian, biographer. Her new book, Alger Hiss Framed, A New Look at the Case That Made Nixon Famous. My name's Peter Solomon. All right, Joan. Alger was yeah. called before the committee. And what happened? Right. Well, he didn't. He wasn't called. He did demand that. I mean, that's important to remember. He demanded it. He felt there was a matter of principle at stake, and he demanded that he be allowed to um, deny these charges under oath. And he did. And it's a very interesting hearing to read in that nobody's nobody on the committee really asks him about the charges against him. He tries to introduce them three or four times, but nobody will pick them up. It's just they just aren't interested in anything but a photo that of, of, a, of another man, which turned out to be Whitaker Chambers. That's all they were interested in. And as he left this hearing, they congratulated him, they thanked him. But the papers the next morning said that Nixon was on the verge of cracking the spy case. And from that time on, Alger was labeled the accused. I think this is this was just. I mean, it, you can't, in a sense blame the papers. They were getting this from a congressional committee. As Nixon says in his tapes, I had to leak stuff all over the place. Accused of being a spy? 
Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. What evidence did Nixon have? What did he use? He had none. Absolutely none. There is nothing. There is no evidence anywhere. I mean, these are these guys like Alger. They've been investigated all over the place by the FBI. There are various uh, congressional uh, orders, public or there's a public order that insists that if you find anything that indicates any subversive activity, it has to be reported to Congress at once. Nobody, and he was investigated under that, as were many other people. Not a thing. There is nothing about anywhere about Alger being in any way subversive. You remind me, Joan, of an old um, adage put out forth by Dr. Joseph Goebbels, Adolf Hitler's propaganda <laughs> minister. <laughs> yeah, that's T- probably a good comparison. Tell a lie often enough and people will believe it. it. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened here. Exactly. It's a what, good quote. What were the results? Well, the results were that... <sighs> Everybody believed he was a spy. I mean, in the end, what happened was that um, Alger, because you could not, you could not see these hearings were held, were were called privileged, and they couldn't be reported verbatim at all. And some of them were just plain secret, uh, so people didn't know what went on in them. They couldn't make the adjustment between what went on in the hearing and what was coming out in the papers. And Alger had no way of knowing. I mean, it's just there's no way he could have known what was going to happen to him. But he, what he did when, was to sue Whitaker Chambers for, for libel. And this was about as stupid a thing as he could have done. I mean, it's, if, if a spy does this, there's some, something wrong with the spy to begin with, which nobody seems to have quite noticed at the time. But uh, at any rate, he, he did sue Whitaker Chambers for libel. And during the deposition, Chambers came up with some papers, which he said that Alger had given him for, for transmission to the Soviets. These were turned over to the Justice Department, uh, which said there's nothing there, absolutely nothing there. There's no evidence that anybody gave them to Alger. There's no evidence that um, Alger ever had them. There's no evidence that, and that certainly the Soviets wouldn't have been interested I mean, they're very boring. I, I've read them. And they, for example, uh, there's a 16-page report on the economics in Manchukuo. I mean, nobody would want to read that. But anyway, it looked very impressive. And there were, one, there were letters to various um, uh, ambassadors, and they are marked confidential. But these had been taken around the State Department in a shopping cart. There was nothing there. So... This was very disappointing for Nixon. And um, a month later, um, during December, during a a killing frost, Chambers dropped his bombshell, which was a pumpkin in the middle of a field during a killing frost, a nice plump pumpkin with an arrow of squashes pointing to it. And in this pumpkin were two reels of film and four canisters. The two reels of film were debunked almost as fast as the um, as the earlier papers. And the four canisters of film, Nixon pocketed and said he would not show these to the Justice Department, which was clearly riddled with commies. You could tell that because they hadn't liked the you know they hadn't endorsed him on the first batch. And those papers 
he said, the, the, what was in those canisters, he said, proved the greatest treason conspiracy in American history. They were, remained hidden until the Freedom of Information Act in the 60s. And when they were revealed, they turned out to be pages from maintenance manuals available at, the, uh, at a public library, at the, you know, the Bureau of Standards Public Library, on the public shelves. How to paint uh, fire extinguishers. Amazing. Oh, it's incredible. It's absurd. That's why I couldn't, really couldn't write the book as a, as a, as a novel. It's just, it's just too absurd. But Chambers himself said the thing about the pumpkin wasn't that it was absurd, but that it worked. And it did. How did Altrazen end up in jail? Well, the accusation against him was that he, I mean, actually Nixon says that this is what he had decided at the very first, right after the first hearing in which Aldred done so well. He decided that we could not prove that he'd ever been a communist, which is, of course, absurd because they were a party. They had to have lists and things like that. But we could get him for perjury. If he has told a lie, we can get him for perjury. And that's what they set out to do. Um, I mean, the, so they, the FBI collected vast amounts of material on him, and um, they, they brought charges of perjury against him. And you can see, you can, actually Nixon's testimony to the grand jury is now available too. That was all secret at the time, during which it's clear he's setting them up. He says he did lie. And it's clear that he is threatening the grand jury that if they don't bring this indictment, they themselves are going to be in trouble with HUAC. Nobody wanted that. He threatened the grand jury? You can see it, yeah. He really, it, it isn't the direct threat. Doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, I, if you don't, I will. But it's quite clear that anybody who is not a patriot, that anybody who is a patriot would do this. You know, would realize that he did lie. And Nixon was an actor, and a very good one, and a poker player. And he was brilliant at this. He, uh, I think they re refer to it as lobbying the grand jury rather than threatening. But if you read it the way it would, would have to have sounded to them, it was a threat. And I think they probably also felt that he was right. I mean, here he was. He was a very impressive man who'd just come down in an airplane to um, to expose this terrible tre treason conspiracy, and you know he, it was it was he, he was impressive. Okay, and Alger was convicted of perjury. He was convicted of perjury and put away for the sentence was five years. Um, he served forty four months in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. I mean most. He should have gone to a much softer place anyway, but no, no, no. They put him into into Lewisburg. It uh, it was not, and yet he. I mean, the way he handled that always amazes me. I mean, he says he said to his son afterwards. He said that three and a half years in Lewisburg is a good corrective to three years in Harvard at Harvard. Hmm. You can see why, but I mean, goodness, aren't many people who would take it that way? Absolutely. He was eventually released, though. He was eventually released and um, went back to. Of course, his life was ruined in terms of what he had done before. He couldn't, you know, couldn't practice law because he was a felon. 
and he had to stand in lines for handouts. And he got a first job. He first got a job at um, a barrette factory, women's barrettes, and he then got a job at a paper company called Davison Bluth. And he contacted my husband, who was the uh, director of consumer reports at the time. You know, and what he what Alger would do would be to call up these people. He was a salesman. He'd call up these people and say, "This is Alger Hiss," which would catch their attention, <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> and um, then he would he went and gave his pitch for the paper. And Dexter, my husband, was as intrigued as anybody. And but unfortunately, Consumer Reports their print run was too large for Davison Bluth, so he invited him to dinner instead. And that was when I met him. What happened to Whitaker Chambers? Whitaker Chambers, he left Time, and he wrote his account of the of the Alger Hiss case in a book called Witness, and of his spying case, you know, his spying life and things and his convictions, which became a great bestseller. And in fact, it had its 50th anniversary not all that long ago. Um, but he died at 61. Um, I've forgotten what year it was. It would have been around 1960, I guess. He must have been dead around when I first met him, met Alger. But he died an honored man. An honored man for telling lies about Alger Hiss. Yes, exactly so. He, he was awarded the Congressional, no, not the Congressional Medal of Honor, that's for, but um, some medal from, by by um, Reagan, who it was, it's the highest um, honor a civilian can get in America. His, his pumpkin farm was made into a national monument. I, I, I'm amazed. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. And the thing I find most amazing is that all of this material is readily available online to anybody who wants to look for it. I mean, it wasn't at the time, so you can't really blame people at the time for believing what they read in the papers, which was all, after all, leaked to them by government sources. Uh, but now there is no reason whatever for anybody to believe it anymore. Well, but it may be not believable then, but now. Ronald Reagan gave him a medal? Ronald Reagan should yeah, have known oh, the yeah, truth. Yeah, check it out. I forgot. I'm, I'm awful at this kind of thing, but it's a, you know, it's an important, it's the highest award that can be given to a citizen. I'm amazed. <laughs> you can see why I couldn't write it as fiction. Though, Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're talking here on 94 WIP Conversation. Our conversation is with Joan Brady, author of the new book, Alger Hiss. Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Joan, you see any parallels between then and today and what's going on today in our country? Uh, let's start with fake news. I mean, that's certainly extraordinary, the, 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 the use of the media to destroy somebody in Alger's time, in that case him, compared to the these insane stories that Trump keeps putting out about himself and about his achievements and whatever else, you know, there's that. There's also the enormous amounts of fear of, in the U.S., I guess, basically of, of basically of Muslims, anybody with a Muslim name, with a slightly Muslim look, um, and the fear of communism. I mean, 
America is wonderfully secure insofar as any country can be. There's no way in which any country can be completely secure. Not even prisons are secure. But and certainly the communist thing back then was a real serious mass hysteria. Almost like the, uh, mass, almost like the mass hysteria of today about Muslims. Absolutely. There, it happens periodically. I mean, it... And it's not all that unusual. I mean, it certainly happened 300 years ago in Salem. And I found out only recently, they hanged 20 people in Salem 300 years ago as witches. And I found out only recently that they have been shown, they've been allowed to be pronounced innocent. And this was only in 2001. It took 300 years. To, to, clear, their, to uh, clear their name. Yeah. Now, maybe it'll take less than 300 years to clear Alger Hiss's name, given a book like yours. Well, I hope so. I do hope so. I rather doubt it, but I hope so. I think people cling to, you know, cling to their myths, and this is an important myth to a good many people. And they say, which, for which, again, there is no evidence. They claim that there is evidence in the R Moscow Orca archives that shows that Alger was a spy. But there isn't. It's not there. I mean, I've dealt with this quite a bit now, and their one source is a guy called Vasiliev, who testified in court that he found no connection whatever between Alger and spying. And he's their source. How were you able, though, to determine to your satisfaction that there was nothing in Moscow about Alger Hiss? Well, I've talked, I, I, there there's a lot of quotes about it. I mean, various, the first person to inquire was, in fact, Putin, as soon as Glasnost sort of came to be. And in uh, 1991, he wrote to a guy called General Volkogonov asking for any information on Alger Hiss. I mean, this was an officially delivered uh, request. What was replied, what Volkogonov replied is not known. It's not part of any, any uh, uh, kind of archive, whatever. But Alger's lawyer wrote the next year, 1992, to the same general and got the reply that there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and there have been since several other searches uh, for, for stuff about Alger. And I think part of the thing is that it's a, sort of a mistaken idea that you assume there's going to be some bit of paper at the bottom of some file that says Alger Hiss was a spy. But in fact, a secret service is a huge bureaucracy. The paperwork is incredible. And Kim Philby himself, the, one of the Cambridge Five, says that, the, that the, uh, any, kind, any paperwork on any agent is mountainous. Nobody could miss it if it's there in the files. They just couldn't miss it. But it's not there. And I dealt with um, uh, an archivist and uh, a spy ex expert for quite a while. I, I emailed, we emailed back and forth. And I asked her a number of questions. One of them was, did the traffic in and out of the archive increase during the period that Alger was under threat? Uh, or at first, I guess I asked her, did it increase before and around the period of other people? And she said, oh, yes, hugely. When Judith Copeland, for example, was under threat, there was a huge increase in the, in the traffic. Same thing with Klaus Fuchs. Around Alger, nothing. And certainly, a couple. They have a couple of Soviet or Russian uh, Cold War historians have written 
sort of about Alger only in, in footnotes, saying that it was so obvious a fabrication. You know, there are no books about Alger. There are books about Cambridge Five. There are books about Klaus Fuchs. There are books about quite a number of people. Nothing about Alger. And this woman, whose name was Svetlana Shervonaya, um, I asked her if there were even any articles about him. And she said, well, there is one, but she'd written it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what if, no, there's no interest. What's the reaction to the book been, Joan? What have you been heard from people? Well, there, I think there's a lot of interest in the idea, and there's a lot of, of there's a lot of upset, much as your own is. Um, but it's very difficult because it is the national narrative that he is guilty, and people don't want to don't want to face the fact that they might have to shift opinions. And this, I think, has, you know, muted things greatly. Makes me wonder what it says about us that we hang on to this myth about Alger Hiss. Well, I'm not sure that it's anything good, but I'm not sure that really... I think you need... I guess what my feeling is is that people do need scapegoats. And you have a committee here that ruled America for 30 years, ruined thousands of lives, cost millions of dollars, and they came up with nothing. This is the one thing they can point to. And Republicans don't like that, I don't think. It was mainly a Republican committee, and Nixon was, after all, a Republican too. So I think there's that as an element as well. Have you been in contact with Alger's children? Oh, yes. He has only the one. He has only the one son, Tony Hiss, who's was a New Yorker writer for years and has written many books himself. And we've discussed all this stuff. Um, it, it must, what a life, to, what a way to have grown up, though, for an eight-year-old boy to have your father be the most horrible person in the world. You know, it, this must have been very, very difficult. I've never talked to him about that. But. Well, it makes me wonder, you know, just as an aside line for a minute, he grew up in a way with that over his head, like the Rosenberg children grew up about the mythology about their parents. Absolutely. Same thing. Wonder if or what the Nixon daughters would say if they read the book. <laughs> well, I think you'd defend your daddy. I don't think it's likely that they would um, think of him other. You know, I gather they were a very fond family, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Very much so. So I don't, I don't, I'm, I suppose if you, I, also you'd forgive if you believed it, but they probably wouldn't believe me. And it doesn't matter that this is all of it. This is basically a case of the emperor's new clothes. And to have been one of the ones who saw the clothes, and perhaps one of the ones to, who actually created the myth of the clothes, has to have been, you know, this would not be pleasing to a daughter. What's and next? we believe what we choose to believe. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be confused with facts. Oh, yeah. Oh no, 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 nothing like that. That would be bad. <laughs> What's the next book, Joan Brady? I don't really know. If you have any suggestions, I'd be happy to hear them. Well, what do you like to write about? I mean, obviously... Well, I'll... at the moment, I, you see, this has taken me nearly 10 years. And it's, it's very hard for me to even think in any, t in any other terms, which is a bit absurd. Um, I mean, not that I haven't had a lot of trouble with this, but it, 
I think if I do anything else, it will probably be about uh, a woman who is a, a New Yorker artist. But I'm not even sure that I want to do that. If you could have dinner with Alger Hiss tonight, if he could come back and you could have dinner with him, what would you ask yeah. him? What's an unanswered question? There, actually, I don't think there are any in the simplest sense. I mean, I, I would probably ask him more about prison. I found that really quite interesting. He was willing, he's always willing to talk about it. He, was ne- he never hid what happened to him. He, you know, if you asked a question, he would answer it. He had no, no shame about it and no resentment so far as I could see. I mean, somebody asked him at one point, what did he think about prison? And he said, it's a terrible place. Nobody should ever go there. And they said, well, what about Nixon? He said, no, it is a terrible place. Nobody should go there. Sounds like he was a forgiving man. Well, he was an extraordinarily forgiving man, I think. He was, he was an extraordinary man. I think to have survived as he did and to say that he led, led, had led a happy life, it just sort of, it really just astonishes me. It just takes my breath away. I mean, looking at the picture of Alger Hiss on the cover of your book. Um, yeah, lovely a, boy. <laughs> he was a good-looking man. He was a very good look. He was the kind of man every man wants to be. You know, he was elegant. He was handsome. He was well-spoken. He was very literate. He knew everything about everything, practically. He was also, I mean, he was clearly a very good diplomat. Um, and for you know, a, he, sorry? Now, and for a man like Alger Hiss, looking like that, given the physical and sexual violence of prisons, couldn't have been easy. Absolutely. Well, he, he was very smart. And one of the things he did when he knew he was going to prison was to talk to whoever it was that was in charge of prisons, whom he knew, and he got some information about how to survive. And this guy said, don't bother with the businessmen that are in there. They're scared and they don't know. All they want to do is go home. He said, they, he said make some sort of connection with the mafia. They're family men. They'll protect you. And that is what he did. Sounds like he used his diplomatic skills in prison. Oh, yes. And he used them not just with the mafia. It was uh, with all the prisoners. He was always available for legal help. And when he left, the prisoners, you know, they lined up and cheered him on his way. That seems to me an astonishing thing. It's an amazing story. And if you sent this book to Hollywood and said, let's make a movie, they'd say, no, nobody would believe it. Well, I think they might, I think because it's got such good court scenes, <laughs> I think they might do it for those. But it, I think the trouble is it's still so much the national narrative that he is guilty that they would get into trouble. They would feel they would get into trouble for countering the national narrative. And I think that's one of the troubles with this book right now. I mean, I really think countering the national narrative is a sin. Well, has there been any repercussions for you? Well, I live in England. Well, no, no. I mean, people say nasty things on, online, but that's about it. Now, one guy said, um, you can give this book to your Stalinist friend for Christmas. <laughs> Amazing. But there's been, been no threats. And I'd like to say thank you to Joan Brady, her important piece of history reexamined the history of Alger Hiss, the communist hysteria, and a whole lot more. Her new book, Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Thank you, Joan Brady. Well, thank you, Peter Solomon. It's been astonishing.
and it's conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Before we leave our conversation, once again, I want to say my thoughts go out to the people of Texas. The devastation has been astonishing. 50-plus inches of rain, houses that aren't there anymore, years of memories, years of accumulation, gone in a flash. People dead, people homeless, people living in shelters. They need your help. Consider if you've got any money to spare giving to the American Red Cross. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.